Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. We are back, and Tim, I'm back on social media. I think you saw my post yesterday. Yeah, it was weird not having you out there uh, commenting and and uh, making uh, posts, so I'm glad to see it. You know, I hadn't really talk too much about the Hoffman process and the retreat that I went to other than I, that I did go. Um, and, you know, eight days, no computer, very um, kind of a spiritual awakening, really, really powerful stuff. But one of the things that I noticed when I came back, especially having eight days off of devices is social media was immediately like just very high on the things that made me anxious, toxic, and go into like old patterns of anger and <laughs> frustration. Really? And things like that. Yeah. Uh, less LinkedIn, but um, Twitter, especially. And I'm just like, ooh, this is, this is toxic. Like, but that was one thing I did not miss when I was there. So before I was ready to just fully sort of jump back in, I wanted to make sure I kind of got some thoughts together. One of which is that Oklahoma City, congratulations, Oklahoma City. For whatever this is worth, you are officially my favorite business town, number one. I'm sure that you'll be getting a plaque and a key to the city soon based on that announcement. <laughs> I just need a key that works to my hotel room in the uh, the Sheraton downtown. So I, I, we were at the Skirvin. J.P. Warren happened to be there, sort of random, so I was able to to hit a networking event. Um, you know, see a bunch of my friends from you know Chesapeake, current ex Chesapeake. Devon, Continental, Enable. It's just like the hit rate of people accepting meetings there and sitting down and then opening up to you and, and talking about what their uh, business plans are and their needs is is just different than it is here. Yeah. And, and even yeah. Houston, it's a little more guarded, but it's like, it's, it's, it's really nice. Like I learn a lot every time I go there. I got a kick. We sent uh, Autumn, our good friend Autumn Chisha up to when uh, this is Energy Navigator days. She goes up to uh, Oklahoma City and it was it was kind of funny because she had seven meetings in one day. Yeah. It was you just can't. I mean, it, one it's the proximity. Everybody's close together. Even if you're driving, it's still just ten minutes away. But two is it's how friendly everybody was and just taking the meetings. I mean, you just can't do that anywhere else. No, no, really love it. Um, we didn't. We just hired three people in Oklahoma City, and. Okay. I guess up until up last six years, I don't think I had anybody located there. It's kind of weird. Just happened in the last two or three months. That's incredible. Are they ex like uh, industry people? Is it because of like industry layoffs and now they're available or, or how did, how did this happen? Um, one person was former Chesapeake. Um, another person is more um, uh, fresh out of school. And then uh, another one had, a left from a tech firm uh, here in Houston helped somebody start a business up in Oklahoma City for the last year and then kind of getting back into it. Oh, that's fantastic. So one thing, Jeremy, yeah, Oklahoma City has gone through, you know, quite a renaissance. If you were if you had traveled there for business in the early nineties, nah. like that's when I started. I remember my first trip was to go see Kerr McGee in nineteen ninety-five to discuss Y2K potential issues with our software. <laughs> And, uh, you know, anyway, it was, it was kind of an amusing conversation because I hadn't even heard of Y2K at that point, but they were ahead of the game. But back then there was no Bricktown, you know, Oklahoma, the downtown just evaporated 
at four thirty. It was there was nothing happening. It was, and so you, if you're traveling, it was it was kind of a ghost town down there at night. And it's really changed since probably two thousand eight when you started going there. You've you've had Bricktown, yeah. the Oklahoma City Thunder downtown. It, there's just a lot happening down there now. Yeah, the first the first time I went there for work, I was at Deloitte and um, the the Devon Building was being uh, constructed. So yeah, nice. and they required all of their their um, service providers to stay in this hotel right across the street. Very uh, interesting um, uh, timing, uh, I guess. Sort of that's like a probably a symbol of a lot of things changing over there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it still sort of it, it sticks out like a sore thumb, right? You drive through a city where the second tallest building is what twenty two or twenty three stories high, and then there's one that's fifty, right? <laughs> so just what that looks like in a really flat area is like kind of astounding. Um, yeah, absolutely. Very. Have very you gone to the um, their like water park where you can do the the rapids and all of that? No, I haven't. Yeah, they have this sweet water park there, and we used to do forums in Oklahoma City, and we we take our whole team there. It's, I mean, it's mainly for kids, but it's also fun for people, you know, for, for adults too. So we, for big kids, basically. Who is yeah. this guy? Who's talking? Y'all gonna say, who's we haven't, guy? there's another voice and we haven't even introduced him. <laughs> My guy, Jeremy Sweek. Who the hell are you, man? Thanks for having me. Tell us about yourself. Um, I guess overview from Dallas, uh, Stayed in Dallas for college, went to SMU. Uh, started out my career right when the big financial collapse happened in, in 08. Um, I think we all thought we were going to be big like Wall Street bankers or something in business school. Hell yeah. And a lot of us became accountants. Um, uh, and, and then I kind of started my career at, at Deloitte and did a bunch of work with them in different industries, retail, life sciences, insurance, energy, and um, uh, being in the Dallas office, a lot of the oil and gas work I would get staffed on. Um, that was sort of my connection to the industry. So I became one of the oil and gas guys in that group and then did a couple of big projects and said, I really like the EMP side of the business and and I want to go kind of get closer to it. So um uh, went and um, started working for for Oxy uh, from there, and that that brought me to, brought me down to Houston where I'm at right now. So I want to Deloitte. All right, let's go back to your early career. You come out, you go to work for Deloitte. I guess the you know there used to be what the big six consulting, and then the big four or five. I don't know how many there are now, but you know it's got a reputation. That whole industry, you, the various competitors, just really being a grind. What was that like coming out of school? And going through that early grind, just you know, I don't know, I don't know what your hours were like, but I hear horror stories about just the the uh, the amount of effort that you go through those first couple of years paying your dues. Yeah, I don't know. The, it was, the hours are pretty high, but at the time, it's sort of a pretty selfish time in in your life when you're that young out of school, and if you're focused on your career, so you don't really have a lot of other other obligations. So I always kind of viewed it as like my moving time from a development standpoint. So really just embraced it. But yeah, I mean, you know, pretty long hours, a lot of travel, you know, but I think that actually kind of made it fun um, since, you know, I didn't have, you know, a wife or kids, you know, for the early part of that. And so um, fairly humble beginning. So didn't travel a lot whenever I was a kid and, you know, the, the first, the first project I had was out and, 
you know, Orange County, you know, and I show up on my first day at work and they mail me a laptop out there. I don't even show up at the local office, you know, and I, <laughs> I'm like, I get in the, it was for uh, PacSun, the, the retailer, and I, I get in the elevator and I'm like full suit and tie, like, like I'm pumped for my first day of real oh, work. Wow. And, and this guy walks in the elevator and flip flops and board shorts. And he looks at me and he goes, <laughs> he looks at me and goes, you a consultant? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah. And he goes, I'm like, I'm like, what, what about you? He goes, I'm the CFO. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> Welcome to the business world. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's amazing. That, so the, the, the hours the hours are I mean, I don't know. I think it's just more of like it didn't really bother me, but yeah, like they're not short. It's not 40 hours a week. So. And it's not for everybody. I mean, yeah. I I just, you know, I know that the I guess the 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 pattern that you see from the outside looking in is they they work you, and after a couple of years, they know they got a certain attrition rate. People are going to go from the their consulting; they're going to go to work for the clients they're consulting for, or things like. They know that they're going to yeah. lose those guys, so they just use them as much as they can. And then the guys that stick around are partners. And yeah, it's a know. good model, though, in the sense that like they also know you're probably going to be a client again. You know, like if you leave, and so right. there's a certain sort of acceptance and, and, and okay. I don't know, like a community around that, you know, where like, yeah, you sort of accept these tours of duty, but what a, you know, straight out of college, those are great places to launch your career just in a way. Cause I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. And, um, but it was a way to figure out things you didn't like doing, you know, along the way, which by getting a lot of different industry experiences. So, so you get to, so you get the opportunity to to have some real hands-on professional training uh, in a variety of different industries with a you know kind of famous consultant consulting firm. And then you take a job at at Oxy in Houston. What what part of the business were you in? And then did you go from Oxy to starting Darcy? What what's the progression from there? Yeah, yeah. The um, I joined their their FP&A group, so I was just doing a lot of the working a lot with the reserves guys and a lot of just the modeling stuff. And I, I kind of tagged on to the Permian business units that were there um, and works a lot with their EOR group, CO2 forecasting, these types of things. And um, that was, that was good. So we really learned the business as a, I'm not an engineer, but you sort of got your hands on it and kind of just understood the, kind of the the business of that business a lot better and just kind of how these different departments work together, the tools that they use. And so a lot of the tools that we were using um, uh, uh, were like sticky legacy software, you know, like um, no offense to the, to the Schlumberger people. We were using like peep for a lot of the forecasting sure. and, yeah. and these types of things. And, and, if you were to compare that at that time to other industries where you'd seen like mind blowing analytic stuff going on, like, Hey, what, why are, this is very, very, uh, inefficient, but it was really sticky and hard to replace. So it was hard to make a change internally. And so I started looking around externally, like surely there's some venture capital guys or others that are investing in this because there's a big gap here. There wasn't a lot, but there were a few, Runs around and there was there was a group here locally that had a small sort of uh, accelerator and, and venture model that they were 
So they were focused on energy tech, um, a lot more like uh, uh, clean tech stuff uh, at the beginning. Sure. But uh, but I found them and started to spend time with them, and then uh, that's where I met my my partner for Darcy Hossein. He was already there, and he convinced me to join them, and and that was sort of the transition into the to the Darcy path. By the way, I can uh, empathize with the. You, you you drop peep. I I banged my head against that wall at Oxy a few times when I was an energy navigator, trying to find a way to get that sticky software out and get ours in to ultimately try to make it as sticky. Um, yeah, is you know anyway. It you mentioned which, that you guys mentioned that you had uh, Jeremy from uh, Combo Curve on yeah, a few yeah, episodes or something, you know. Yep. And it's that type of stuff that you were maybe expecting to see back then, you know. Um, and what you had were like these softwares that were kind of built by engineers for engineers. Yeah. So it's almost like when you open up some of the Microsoft products and it's got a thousand menu options and possible settings and things that you can do. And it just is a bit overwhelming. The user experience isn't too great. And we were just seeing a lot of that, not just Peep, but just, I mean, a lot of these what? legacy plat platforms. Same thing when you, I mean, Pick your product. If it's in place, let's just take that family of products. You know, I guess the the gorillas in the U.S. is Aries. You had Peep, which is kind of international, and that's why Oxy had it. You had if you're up in Canada. There's two two of them, Valnav and Mosaic. And but to to take them out, you know, at the time anyway, it's always well. Do you have this? Show me this button. Because this is a button I use all the time. <laughs> oh, shit, I don't have that button, but I have 17 other buttons that they don't have. And you get into a feature fight and, you know, in order to replace them, I used to tell, I think I was telling Jeremy Funk this, was in order to replace that kind of incumbent, you can't be two times better. You got to be five times better or 10 oh, times better. Yeah. And, yeah. Or do something crazy different, which you know ultimately that's the approach that combo the guys at Combo Curve are taking, and you know I hope they I hope they do a great job um, doing that. So it's interesting. So is you know, we're building up to this, but you know you met up with Hossein, and and I guess you guys are incubating the idea of Darcy Partners. Uh, what what was the vision, and how has it changed over time? Why Darcy Partners? Why did you guys form it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like originally we like a lot of folks that you'll see come maybe in our mutual social networks. There's an attraction to venture, I think, and kind of there's a bit of a um, sort of a, a glorification or celebration of that part of the world. And and that was interesting to look at the investment opportunities that might be there. But then once we spend more time on it, you realize that a lot of this the early stage stuff, it's not really an access to capital problem that these guys were having. Um, so, so we were spending a lot of time with the founder groups of these portfolio companies and it was really like a, um, uh, an information flow problem. So you have this, like, you know, these big enterprises and you have typically people that have never really maybe sold anything in their life or built a company. Right. And they've got a thing that works and it maybe has been piloted by a couple of people. And now trying to get beyond this death by pilot phase was like the real issue, you know? And so we'd see this, we would always call it like an information asymmetry problem where somebody, there's some, a thing where the tech risk has been mitigated to some degree, 
but people don't really know about it or the right people don't know about it at the right time. So sort of different than sort of blasting things on social media about about like tech broadly, but just do the right people within the organization know about these things at the right time. And we that's that we kind of became obsessed with this. And and that was sort of the the, the evolution of Darcy, where we were saying a lot of our LPs at that that group were were the strategic oil and gas companies anyways. And in a way, you realize you were actually acting as this innovation as a service concept to them more than the financial returns that they were going to generate from from that 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 fund model that we had constructed. So we said, hey, is there just a as a service business here that that makes more sense? And that that was that was Darcy. So, so yeah, connecting, uh, hold, on to, hold on. So, so connecting the innovators and the operators, right? I mean, there's definitely similarities with what I do today, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. But the thing that has impressed me a lot with with Darcy, Jeremy, is is how you guys have been able to pivot. Because when Darcy first hit my radar, this was late 2017, and I'm like, this is a good concept because it is an awareness issue, and there's also a marketing branding issue that all these companies. No offense, Tim OVS is part of this. It all sounds the same. Production optimization or analytics or business intelligence or whatever the buzzwords are at the time, all these products start to sound the same. So if you're a busy executive at an E&P company, how do you decipher what you should even look at? Which of these things fills what niche? And then what overlap is there on tech? Mm-hmm. So you hit my radar with doing these sorts of events. I think you had one in Denver and it was like somebody came over from Santos or BHP building or something. And it was like, Hey, they're going to evaluate certain technologies. So you brought in a bunch of vendors to do it. So a very in-person model, right? Like connecting in person for a day, a bunch of logical innovators to meet with oil and gas operators and decision makers within those companies. Yeah. And then, and and it, then COVID. And it's a bit connects back to both of our backgrounds. So like Hossein was, I mean, he was at McKinsey, a lot of consulting work. And what we had found was that you sort of have two things going on here. You've got like the market research people, you know, so whether it's the Gartners or the CB Insights or whoever that do a lot of like tech research and hype curves and these types of things. Not a lot of specialization in our industry or a very good understanding of the value chain at a, at a deeper level, you know, and and then there's a network component to it, you know? And so you look at say a LinkedIn or something like that, it's a bit, it's useful, but it's, there's no curation. I mean, it's just kind of like a public restroom sometimes with, with when it comes to some of the content that on there. And so really it was like, Hey, how do you combine sort of elements of like, let's take the the curation and apply it to both the network and the, and the kind of tech research and scouting and do more than just create like, like market maps and things like that, but actually do due diligence, you know, on these technology companies. And, and Tim has had exposure to us before. And, and, and I think that's the part that people love. Like if I, if I was at Oxy, if something new came out and, and the GM or whoever wanted us to go look into it, it sounds great. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to call your buddy at Pioneer or whoever and say, have you heard of these guys? Like, this is a real thing. Like, it sounds great, you know? And so part of what we were doing, we were like, well, I could just do that for a lot of these guys, you know, like, why, why would I not talk to the users of these, you know? And so we kind of built that into the, to the business to say, I could 
help de-risk all the way up to that initial decision point and just remove a lot of the administrative friction for these guys. And well, and I can vouch for, I think, I don't know if I was in one of the, one of the early workshops, I think um, with OBS. Thank you, Jeremy Funk for uh, putting me in that category, but we were uh, it as an, early company, small company, don't spend a lot of money on marketing. You know, you want to go talk to the VP of technology or innovation or the CIO, but they have, they don't want to talk to vendors. They don't want, I mean, there's a natural, Hey, we're busy. We can't be talking to vendors all day. And I, I empathize with them. Yeah. You don't want to have 20 guys selling stuff all day. So there's a natural blocker right there to prevent these all these little guys to come in but if you talk to the cios they tell you we don't have exposure to all the new stuff that's coming out so we don't know what's out there so what i liked about the darcy model was you kind of okay guys who really want to see new stuff come see to the new stuff and we'll put all the stuff you tell us you want to see about you know we'll bring the right vendors in to talk to you so that was what i thought was so unique was solving that problem of how are we going to introduce it to these guys that need to see it and say they want to see it, but they're not getting a chance to see it. And we, as a small company, simply not ready to go out and spend $4 million on a marketing campaign to get in every, get in front of every CIO. Anyway, so I don't know if you got a comment on that, but we, I found it really refreshing to get 10 minutes in front of 12 clients that I want to talk to. Yeah, no, it's the it's an alignment of incentives thing that is uh, underlies the whole kind of business model from day one. And so, like, as you know, like we never chart, we don't try to make money from the 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 startups, you know, or it's not even just startups, but just the supply side of this equation. We don't monetize that. And yeah, the innovators, we don't monetize that intentionally because we're really a trusted advisor to the to the operator side or the 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 demand side and so it creates a good dynamic where a lot of the founder team or executive teams of the innovators have a great relationship with us because there's no bait and switch like you're not going to get on our list and then we come back and ask you to buy something so that then and then the operators know that you're not just you know pumping things where you get kickbacks or something like there's there's a trust there and and so what you've been able to do is you help a lot of the 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 innovators by saying, hey, I'll aggregate all these operators and I'm a great voice of the customer. So let me do like say I do the scoping work with a lot of these these EMPs or utilities now as well. You have a very good sense of the the voice of the customer and you're doing that mapping to a lot of the 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 trends and the themes to figure out what's the best use of everybody's time, you know? And so when we started the company, it was like this big digital wave, you're right in the middle of it, Tim. So it was like, like all this fluff around AI and machine learning and this and that. And like people were struggling to make heads or tails of it. So we built the business originally on like that theme. Cause we were like, Hey, this is where there's lots of misinformation and confusion, you know? And so we started very heavily on the digital front. So, so you continue doing these in-person events. I remember, you know, great uh, trajectory in Calgary as well. I met Andrew and of course, Darren uh, does some business with 
Funk Futures, and he came on this podcast maybe a month ago. I know you guys are are buddies. So so the the model was let's have these really not traditional sales guys, like like almost SME types that have contacts within the industry to get people comfortable with the with the Darcy model. Um, had some success with it, I would say, very very clearly. Like no no real competition. I I, I like the approach you guys took. And then COVID hits and I'm thinking, what the hell are these guys going to do, right? This is an in-person company. It's based, the values based on the, the event or, or whatever yeah. you call it, right? The, the forum. So, so what did you do? Like you guys are at a crucial point here where we got to pivot our company somehow. And what have you done and, and what do things look like going forward? Mm-hmm. Well, we got lucky a little bit, but the, uh, <laughs> um, so we had, I mean, we were kind of killing it back in like 2019, to be honest, like we had a hub in Calgary, we were doing stuff in all the key hubs, basically. Oh, yeah. And But then you were like, you know, from a North America EMP standpoint, we had a lot of coverage and you're running into maybe some scalability issues as you try to go more international. You know, what am I going to do? Go to like Spain, like like it's international was going to be a new challenge for us already. And then we were running a ton of live events, man. Like we were doing like, I don't know, like 50 of these things and constantly like going to Calgary, Denver, Oklahoma, Midland, you know, which, which was fun, but you were shipping a whole like events ops team in and out of these places. Like it was a, it was a whole production. Um, I never thought I would be like an event management expert, but I kind of, we came, we became one uh, through that. And, but we were like, man, we, to scale this, just getting butts and seats was a huge pain. So like you had people emailing who's coming. I need the SME. Like maybe you're doing something on uh, artificial lift, maybe the theme in Midland or something like that. And so you're, it's not just random people from the clients. Like you want to find the right person to attend because these things were intimate. They're like 40 people, you know, and you got one or two guys from each company in this, in this United Nations style format to say, Hey, Darcy, you know, give us the um, synthesis of all your research here. And then these innovators are going to be sort of actors in this play in a way, and they'll kind of come in and, 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 and participate. And uh, so we, we started looking externally for software for event management. Cause we're like, this is now, I mean, there's too many people mm-hmm. hard to coordinate. You looked at like Cvent and these other platforms and we're like, I don't really want to pay like 30 or $40,000 a year for something like this. That doesn't seem that complicated. So let's just build our own event management software, you know? Um, and so, uh, but like just mainly for ourselves from like an ops excellence standpoint. And so mid 2019, we started that. And then a lot of our clients wanted the research that we were, we would email them our research, you know, like here's a report or here's a, here's some inside baseball on this theme. And they're like, can we just access this in one spot? So we're like, well, maybe we should just build a content management system to house this. And in Q4, we kind of just built the event management piece, started to dabble with the uh, um, content management. And we said, let's just commit to building an actual platform you know, not to displace the original one, but we started testing these virtual events back in 2019 just to see if we could get some scale out of it without having to travel everywhere. And uh, yeah, then February hits and I'm walking back from the last live forum we would have done. And it's the um, one of the executives from Hunt and we're walking back 
to the to his hotel our office and he's like this COVID thing you know it's a real deal he's telling about some of the changes they were making you know and some of the advisors that they were they were working with and talking about our personal investments whether I should go all cash you know different things and uh and that was like a weird moment for me because that like this guy's super smart and I was like he's seeing something I don't see here and a month later like everything stopped and and we just pushed this platform out to all of our clients and I think from their perspective they probably thought that we had like just went real hard and just popped this thing out but really we kind of got lucky that it had been evolving since you know mid 2019 up to that point so so now you've so got a portal, right? So you basically took, you know, the events, maybe will, maybe won't come back regardless. But now, and I really actually like this platform, Tim. Like you should sign up. I think they have a three-week type trial thing. But um, you go in and you look for, you know, you just do a search for certain softwares and they've done their due diligence on it, right? So somebody's kind of analyzed the company. There's there's high-level, like, quick hitter information. And it's it's very robust. Jeremy um, Funk, I think you should do some research because I believe if you were to go search their site, you would find me on there, sir. Oh, yeah. Just to just do a little bit more research. Fine. <laughs> no, I agree. It's it's a great portal. And I think, you know, uh, you've got at least one reason we're doing this. We're recording on a Friday morning as opposed to a Friday afternoon is because they have quite a bit of content delivery and virtual meetings going on between innovators on Friday afternoons. And I've been on a few of those as well. Mm-hmm. So Jeremy, I've, Sweek, I've heard you on a couple of those. So I think that that content is is great. And there's also another thing that's going on at Darcy that maybe is equally valuable to these up and coming smaller companies. And that is the innovator to innovator conversations, because sure. At, at the early Darcy events, you know, so you've got the Apaches and Oxys all sitting in a room and, you know, you go in and do your 10 minute presentation and then they throw darts at you when you leave the room and they rate you and there's all kinds of stuff that goes on. Well, what's going on in the other room is all the vendors are sitting around meeting each other, you know, in a bullpen. And I wound up having some great conversations with the guys at Ambient and Kelvin and you know, they, and it was kind of a, are we competitors? Are we not competitors? And we, we're, we're doing that little dance that we always do when, when vendors meet each other and uh, finding out where there's overlap, where there's not, should we working together? And we, we wound up having a lot of great conversations with the guys at Ambient specifically and Kelvin, since I've mentioned them mm-hmm. and, you know, figuring out if we could go work together that, that they've lasted, uh, you know, so that's where, you know, some guests on our show have come from those meetings in those bullpens, but now you've got innovator to innovator presentations going on. So I don't know if you want to go into that at all, Jeremy. Yeah, it's just yet another like community gap that I think that you from a it's just good business, you know, uh, for us, like you're not monetizing it directly, but like by having a robust inner innovator community, it's it kind of helped everyone benefits through this little marketplace. And so, um, but, but part of our, the reason why we started that, um, one of the reasons we started doing that with you guys this year was that we actually learn a lot from those discussions too. And so I think the, even if you are, aside from the things that you mentioned, like there are partnership things that I think aren't clearly visible, you know, unless you have a reason to collide with each other, but 
in addition to that, there's just not like all the systems and processes and sales strategies and marketing things that you got, you're all dealing with the same problems. So it's actually good to hear yep. from people that are maybe looking at, I don't know, like, um, I don't know, even technical sales handoffs, like SDRs to account executives and these types of things. Like, I don't see a lot of that type of stuff happening in our, in our industry versus like, you'll go to maybe California or something like that. And you'll see these very deep communities, or you have to go on to pavilion or something, you know, for, for kind of a, a, a broad sales community, you know? And so, because it tends to, to our relationship, a lot of times is with the kind of founders or executive teams. It's also a good kind of, it's the right profile of people to be colliding, you know, a lot of times as well to see those opportunities. So, so it's been good. And you've, you've worked with David, which now I think he's been, he was one kind of leading, leading a lot of that uh, this year, but uh, we've gotten a lot of value out of it and we get a lot of good feedback from it. Um, uh, so we, we like it. Now, now let's, let's talk, you, you've talked about operators and of course this is an upstream oil and gas centric podcast generally speaking but but talk to me a little bit about of course the energy transition esg uh, emerging technologies that are also in your platform so so i'm assuming you do a lot more than just upstream um, but want to get a sense of like what you're seeing with esg and i want to dive into some of the conversations i had in oklahoma and shine some light on that yeah what well, I mean, what I'll start is maybe the analogy to what we saw back when we started the company on analytics. It's a new thing yeah. that the world decided like is important now. And um, there is a, not everyone speaking the same language, you know, at the beginning. And so there's a lot of misinformation and those are typically areas where we can be very useful. And so of course we've, we've, we've been working on that for a few years now and, um uh i've seen two things one just the the emps for sure a lot like they're they're really well versed on this at, at you know at this point it's been it's been a while there's been a lot of work on methane and and things like that um and i think now you have this maybe a not to be dorky but like you almost have like this bimodal distribution where you've got like the best in class folks they really are doing a lot of great things and you've got a, a group of maybe maybe laggards that then like you know the industry as a whole you know are trying to solve for um and and um but that connected us also to the further downstream too when we started doing that work where we saw an opportunity with the utilities because their worlds are starting to come mm -hmm. come together a lot more you see more vertical integration and just new business models that are going to have to be made um, on the utility side, uh, and so so that was the biggest shift for us was saying not just sort of in an evolutionary way focusing on sustainability for oil and gas, but then also kind of going through deeper energy transition topics and 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 working with the utilities directly um, and, and in the same way that we work with the MPs. That's great. It, it seems like there's room for this across the board, right? I mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you guys have done a ton of research and it, it shows within, within the model. Tim, real quick. Um, so on the ESG topic, and, and I'm curious from Sweek, we'll get to him in a minute, around what you're hearing from your sea levels. But, but I had some meetings and meals with some pretty high level folks uh, within publicly traded organizations when I was in OKC. 
And the general sentiment was there's still not a clear understanding of what they're supposed to do around ESG as it relates to technology. And I'm not talking about physical things out in the field. I'm talking about back office, tracking, analytics, forecasting, how you present these things to investors and executives above them in their company, right? Um, and, and what was indicated to me is that there's basically text threads and email chains of people that are keeping in touch on this, right? So you might have, like you said, a, a, a COO at Hunt on the same thread as the CIO at uh, Denbury, who's also on with ConocoPhillips' director of ESG, right? And they're like, what the hell is going on? What are you doing? And, and what I've seen is the answer is still the same as it was three or four months ago is that people don't know. So I'm curious, kind of from Sweek's perspective, are you seeing more people coming to you asking you the same question? Like, what are people doing in this area? And and is that sort of the the most rapid, you know, the most interest, the most growth? Or are you seeing other areas too? Yeah, I think the the first wave was maybe very much on what are people doing. And so our community was very useful for that originally, where if you go back in time, like 18 months or two years, you know, if you hadn't created a sustainability report or something like that, a lot of those were first time motions that people were going through. And so even for a few customers, we, we kind of worked on them to create their first sustainability report, you know, um, uh, because, because that was a new thing. And then, but now I feel like the literacy level is just a lot higher on, on these topics in general. And, and for those folks that have kind of like pushed that for a couple of years now, they're kind of moving more into like, um, more optimization related problems. And you have less people sort of saying, Hey, let me just get familiarized with, you know, some of these issues. So I, I feel like it's evolved pretty quickly, to be honest. Yeah, it has. It has. There's just no standout. Like what is the playbook? What do we do? Whereas I think people have started to figure that out slightly more for other things, whether it's production optimization, you know, routing by exception, analytics, data management, those things have come along a lot in the past decade, right? Where this is, I could see major growth the next 10 years. I think we're we're evolving out of the just do something. We're going to make a bunch of big statements and then go do something and not, you know, what is the something? And everybody's kind of doing different things and learning about things like scope one emissions versus scope two emissions versus, mm-hmm. you know, something beyond that. You know, I know from, from our side, we're seeing the same thing is some people are talking about getting rid of, you know, uh, diesel generators out in the field in favor of something else. And uh, some, some of the other clients are actually just getting rid of, of assets so they can achieve their goal and passing it off to someone else. I mean, yeah. uh, and and I'm, I I always make reference because we always talk about this, but I've seen it happen in Alaska where BP exits something that's going to be high emissions, and the company that takes it up is now the the biggest emitter in Alaska. Oh, yeah. So ha, what did they solve? Okay, you know obviously we're going to move away from that eventually, but for BP it looks good, but for the acquisition guys maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, I'm working with a client in another continent, as it turns out where we're actually looking at emissions forecasting, but in the long term. So if, you, if you're going to develop a gas field to lower your emissions, a new gas field, so it's, it's lower emissions to develop a new gas field than to take on an old brownfield uh, because of the compression needs and all that. But 
So for five years, your emissions are less. However, in five years, you're going to have to start putting compressors out in that location. What does that start to look like? So we're starting to look at those kind of long-term emissions, but it's, it's, it is a very interesting time to see all of the, there is no playbook funk, as you said, that people are following. So it's interesting to see how they all step into this. Anyway, long yeah. story, but go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah. We, the, I think at a minimum, like on the collaboration front where you see a lot of that is nobody wants to be last, right? Like, like, even if you don't want to be first, you definitely don't want to be last. I spoke of this Urtech thing and I had this like cat catchy title on like, like about like the ESG bear, you know, it's like, you know, you know, you just you don't, you don't want to be the last guy you get eaten by the bear, but the, 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 um, these guys are focused on generating returns. So I think sometimes yeah. the ESG thing becomes a bit of a distraction. It is important to these guys but important for some of the maybe the more macro things that you're talking about, Tim, which is like, look, as some cohorts of the EMP industry are going to fully pivot, which means that someone is going to take over those hydrocarbons and the people that will take over those hydrocarbons, you, just as a country, you don't want that to be the most irresponsible uh, operators. I mean, there's like geopolitical, you know, right. aspects to this as well. And and so I think there are other because you know that there's going to be some of those pivots, then it makes it it makes business sense too to just be in the peloton at a minimum. You know, like you want to be the peloton, don't be the lag the laggard. So. I like the term fast follower. You want to be a fast follower. So once you know, let someone else cut their cut their teeth on the bleeding edge, and we'll be right behind them with you know following up on some of those ideas. Mm -hmm. Some people, one of our clients, there's a. a, a independent that we've been talking about like more vertical integration and these types of things. And I mean, uh, I think it's public. They, they, um, they actually went and bought their own generation asset down in temple, you know, for their own, uh, gas to kind of control the, the, more of the supply chain, you know, and I think you see more of these, um, these types of transactions and business model augmentations that like, uh, maybe are just less traditional, you know, as people see opportunities. So it doesn't even need to be a technology pivot necessarily more than just like a, a business strategy uh, shift. But there, there are sort of like the, the bigger companies, like if, 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 if say, you know, BP or whoever has like a mobility strategy or something like that, you have this weird nexus being created now through energy transition between like the pure play utility operators in these EMPs. It's a very interesting time. And those guys haven't really had to compete with each other the same way like in oil and gas, right, on the utility front. Sure. And now these new business models are going to create a lot of just just interesting opportunity. Well, even beyond that, now that hi the hydrogen economy, whether, you know, depending on where you are on this, blue, green, ammonia, and all that other stuff, suddenly storing hydrogen and ammonia is going to be interesting. And these are the things that util oil and gas companies and utilities, that's going to be another crossover point. Mm -hmm. um, how, are we, how are we going to do that to make it economical first and maybe profitable later? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's going to be, an, it's, the whole transition is going to be fun for the, you know, I think that's obviously the more for the energy industry. So. Yeah. And I get it too on the other side, because like, we look at tech all day long. So we look at a bunch of this hydrogen stuff. We'll look at 
you know, all the, you know, um, solar, we've been looking at nuclear. I mean, we, we cover the, the key topics. And I think some people, especially like my pure play and P friends, like my personal friends, just like you did on the analytics stuff, five, six, seven, eight years ago, there is a certain amount of grifting that occurs, you know, for a period of time as these new things, like it's almost required to have that marketing push uh, on the supply side, you know, for, you know, it's going to happen that way until sort of the literacy catches up and then like sort of you, you hit the right balance, you know, I think. So that's why I always like look at the big cloud and, and, and AI ML thing as like an analog for some of this, you know, because at the, if you go back in time, there was a lot of the same grifting and, and stuff going on there as well, you know. Well, that's a good, that's a good point. Love grifting reference. I don't think we've had one of those before. <laughs> first, first time grifting's been been mentioned. Um, I got two more questions, and then we're gonna we're gonna let you run because I know you're a, a busy guy, Mister Sweet. So one is, what is Darcy gonna look like in five years, g- given the the pivot that you guys have made? Um, and, and just curious, sort of what comes to mind. I know you you're kind of a big brain guy. You think. Um, both tactical and strategically. So I'm curious what your thoughts are, what your company is going to be. Is it full-blown SaaS? And then any advice you'd give to entrepreneurs? Like, you you know, you had a, a background where you could have easily stayed and and become a, a partner or worked your way up to a VP or C-level position at an operator and decided to go out and, and branch out on your own. So sort of those two things. What's, what's Darcy going to be when it grows up? And any advice you'd have for young entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think the... I think the opportunity for for Darcy is to almost like create an asset class around innovation that didn't didn't exist before, you know. And so, like, I don't know, you know, how like people will say something is the Uber of this or the Uber of that. I feel like what we're doing around the network and the and the and the research and this sort of some some marketplace dynamics that exist with the business model, um, like. I hope that that the the brand is sort of identifies with changing the way industries innovate, you know, for the for the better, and so, and and not viewed necessarily as a as a as a sort of a niche mercenary group to go help a few operators innovate, but it's actually like a a, a system and platform that is 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 sort of broadly effective, you know. Um, so I think we'll stay in energy. But I don't think that this is exclusive to energy, kind of the the playbook itself, you know. Um, so that's 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 one thing. Um, what was the other question? Oh, on the any, any advice for for entrepreneurs? Um, so I got, you, you went I and stumped him. You went and stumped him, Jerry. I, I well, I could talk for like an hour. I mean, like I I have like my own <laughs> little my buddy group, you know, that we provide counsel to each other. We're always talking about this stuff. I think. So when we started the company, um, you know, I'd never had a sales job or anything. And I almost like viewed sales. Like it's kind of weird in business school. There's no sales classes. I don't really understand that. Weird. Yeah. It's kind of view, viewed as like this nasty thing, maybe. I don't know. Like, it, and I laugh about it. Like now it's just very bizarre to me. And everything you do, whether you're going to go start a company or whatever, everything you do, is a you know some form of a of a of a of a selling process you know and not to be trite about it but i think 
some people maybe don't like sort of embrace that in the early days, you know, between like building great things and figuring out how to have a business around it, you know, and for us, um, the, so we didn't have like a product, we had a process that lived for three, four years before we had sort of like productized it. And part of it was like humbly listening a ton and just sort of, can I generate money for a thing that I create create value for, you know, and, and, and then it became a product. I'm not saying that you shouldn't start with the product. I just think that, um, there's a lot of like trite stuff around product market fit. And I, and I, and I think that's hard for, for founders to, uh, to navigate. I think it's interesting. I, we've, we've brushed across this topic a couple times on the show, Jeremy, we should probably have a whole session on it, which is sale. And I'm an engineer that went into sales so I had the same problem and that is, and, and I think a lot of founders, including the founder of my company, cannot sit with salespeople, just cannot do it. It's not. Yeah. And, and sales, after going through a lot of different sales training, sales is a science. It's not a trick, you know, no sales, good sales guys. Uh, hopefully Jeremy and I are good sales guys are not trying to trick you. It is, in fact, trying to add value to your company, but we have to get we have to go through. There's a process and things that we're looking to do, um, and I think a lot of founders really miss that. They think sales is just you got to get the slick guy to go out and chat up a bunch of people, and it all just happens after that. The product mm-hmm. will sell itself. The process will sell itself. I don't know how many times I've heard that, but anyway, it's just an yeah. interesting topic, and I'm I'm happy to hear you. Have, have gone through that. But a lot of founders, I think that's where they cross that innovator's dilemma that when they're trying to cross the chasm, and I'm just throwing all kinds of buzzwords out here now, yeah. but when you're trying to cross that chasm, having sales as a profession, part of your organization, plugging Funk Futures now is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, um, the, I've enjoyed learning about it. And one thing, like I kind of subscribed to a lot of like Aaron Ross's stuff, the guy who wrote predictable revenue and, um, the, um, like some people look at it and they they think I'm like, I'm selling something. And like, it sounds kind of lame, but like, especially in a B2B context, usually the people you're interacting with want to buy something, you know, they wouldn't be interacting with you if they weren't interested in the thing that you were working on. Generally, it's hard, it's hard for these guys to buy. Like, think about like if you, that, that's why I think sometimes it's good if you're at the on the EMP side for a while, because just the amount of stuff that is required <laughs> to to buy something, like these guys are taking on a lot of political risk as well. You know, yes. like to the peep example, like do you want to be the face of the thing that you're going to rip out and then like change right. a lot of people's daily activity? I think that gets lost sometimes in the relationship between vendor and 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 uh uh buyer even with sales teams like i think sales teams struggle with that but so that is just that was a whole learning for us that i still don't think Mm -hmm. i've mastered like it's a continuous thing and like and it and it actually the 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 needs it's evolutionary even with the company's maturity you know so the sales stuff you needed on day one is way different than what you need now and and we blew off a lot of stuff early around like um uh like people topics like values as a company you know mm-hmm. and 
I don't know if I have the right answer. I just know that that has always been the the hardest part. Like before we started the company, someone might ask us like, well, what are your values? Like you personally, Tim, if someone asks you, what are your values? Like it doesn't just roll off the tongue a lot of times. I'm like, these are the four <laughs> things that like I really care about. And there were a couple of advisors, you know, that pushed Hussein and me like, like to, to think about that more. And um, uh, one of them, Susan Cunningham, and she she's great. And like at first, like, oh, this mushy, like value stuff. And that's actually been very beneficial like the last few years though because like you sort of hiring on values uh, is actually a a really important thing you know and so and and it just it was something that didn't really even enter my head in the early days you know like when we had started the company on like who do you want to surround yourself by you know you can have the smartest people in the world but like if one of your key values is on like like hunger and ambition, but they're not like a, a super hungry, pr- like you're going to really have challenges. Yeah. Yep. Yes. This is good stuff. Yeah. See, we yes. could talk about this for a long time. Yeah. And that the whole sales, like the whole sales guy thing. Yeah. I mean, so, so me, like, and I talked to David Forsberg, former guest about this and like right now I'm sort of going personally from, you know, I've been a sales guy my whole career, right? I'll always be a sales guy, but 18 years as a sales guy, I've, I've, I think made the transition now to being a sales consultant. The, the transition from there would be to being like an executive, like a CEO, you know what I mean? So, so it, it's going to take a while to get that sales stink off, but I can have more open conversations now because I'm a consultant versus, oh, you represent one brand. I got to be careful for you because you're always trying to bring it back to that one product. Now people are like, what do you got? I'm like, well, what do you need? Like you tell yeah. me, what do you got? <laughs> oh, what we got is a real need around XYZ. I got you. Right. So I, you know, I think people appreciate that sort of white glove approach. And 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 frankly, some of it was my inspiration was around Darcy. It's like where you guys take it to the point, I think I like to pick it up because you're saying, hey, we're not going to charge the the innovator. You're going to have access to this and it's great. I'm saying we will charge you, Mr. Innovator, and we'll get you those immediate connections and more of a direct sales. I am biased conversation versus you guys playing an unbiased role. So mm-hmm. yeah, love the model that you came up with. Uh, you know, I'm glad that we've been able to spend time and get to know each other. And, and I'm excited to see where this, this whole thing goes um, and see how robust your database becomes in other industries. Cause it's, it's just a very logical solution. No, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. It's been, it's been fun. I don't, I don't know how much wisdom I've actually shared on this stuff. Um, uh, I always tell my wife, I'm like, I actually, like if I had to codify what I've learned, I don't even know how I would do it. It's just like the, I think five years from now, you probably really realize what you really learned, you know, or 10 years from now, you know, but it's definitely not real time. A lot of times. Oh, Absolutely. Hey, thanks for coming on, Jeremy. It's been great to have you. It's we're our second time having a Jeremy, so it was tough on me having to figure out which one I'm addressing. So you'll live. You'll live. Yeah, here we go.